Hello, and welcome to the 26th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and their communities. For return listeners, welcome back, and thank you so much for always for your continued support. And if it's your first time listening, welcome, and we're super glad you found us. All of this is made possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners, including Evolve Her, Chicago's first creative co-working space and event space for women, the Insurance People, a woman and a minority-owned agency focused on small business health insurance, individual health insurance, and Medicare supplements, and of course, our usual regular podcast home, 1871, Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology. And I'm Becky Carroll, President and CEO of C-Strategies, and I am your host. So if you enjoyed our last episode with Tusk Philanthropies President, former Chief of Staff to Dr. Jill Biden, and my friend Sheila Nix, you're in for a treat. She is back to talk with us about the work she's helping to lead at Tusk Philanthropies on the mobile voting project and how the shift to mobile voting is really more important perhaps than ever before. Mm -hmm. So Sheila, thanks for joining us again. Sure. Happy to be here. (laughs) <laughs> so, so tell us, let's start, uh, you know, tell us how you got started with your work at Tusk Philanthropies and why this focus on mobile voting. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, I was Dr. Jill Biden's chief of staff in the White House. And when we finished up, I was there till January 20th, 2017. Um, <laughs> And then I came back to Chicago and was, you know, trying to think of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to work on. And, you know, also still like somewhat surprised that we didn't have a president, Hillary Clinton. So I'm um, trying to think I of something, know. <laughs> you know, meaningful to do that could, could make a difference in our political situation. So I was just reaching out to people to think about what, you know, what might be out there and, I think you know, just like I do, Bradley Tusk. He worked with us in his office in Illinois. And Bradley has... We're uh, both in the book. Yep, yep, (laughs) in the book. (laughs) We made the book. Thank you, Bradley. (laughs) Um, And so when I was talking to him, you know, he had started a philanthropy. And he had this idea about, you know, if you make it easier to vote, more people will participate and we could change the inputs into the political process which would then hopefully result in better political outputs. And I think in part, you know, we were looking at a a big picture kind of problem, which is if you look at congressional races around the country, so many of them are in districts that are gerrymandered. And so if you win the primary, you're, you're all but certain to win the general. But the turnout in the primaries is so low, a lot of times it's like 15 to 18%. And one of the examples that, you know, we always talk about is if you're, let's just say you're a congressman from Florida, you're a Republican, there's been a lot of serious shooting incidents in schools and nightclubs in your state, and you probably deep down know that the assault weapon ban is the right thing to do. However, in your election, when you're running, if you have a, you know, a primary only about 15%, as I mentioned, of the people turn out. And the bulk of those people are 
National Rifle Association members. And so if you don't vote the way they want, you're going to lose the primary. You'll get primaried on the right, and then you'll, you, know, you, won't, you won't be able to do your job anymore. And so right. we thought, you know, what if it was easier to vote and you could have 50 or 60% of people turn out in primaries? And, you know, this, the same issue happens on both sides with different interest groups. But what if then you had more mainstream people on both sides voted in you could work to solve a lot of problems. The other thing, you know, if you think about something like climate change and you talk to average people, probably 60 to 70% of Americans agree on some basic solution to start dealing with climate change, but those aren't the 60 to 70% of people who vote in primaries. And so then you end up with these really polarized systems. So, so it was kind of like, how do we change the system? How do we make it so that it's easier for people to vote. And then kind of the last piece of that is, you know, if you have kids that are now like, say, 10 to 14 years old, they've grown up doing everything on their phones, you know, socializing right. it's different than us that came to it, you know, came to it later. And when they start voting, you know, there's a concern that they're not going to go wait in line at a polling place. And some of them don't aren't even like super excited about mail because they don't usually use the mail system either, right. you know? And <laughs> so... So the idea was, you know, how can we get this tested and ready and being able to be used to expand uh, voter participation and also have it ready when, you know, in four to eight years when younger voters start participating. So what kinds of populations have been using this mobile voting technology so yeah. far? So we started, um, our first pilot was with the state of West Virginia and Secretary of State Mac Warner in 2018. And we started with um, deploying military and overseas voters um, for a couple of reasons. One, it's one of those demographics that most people understand why you need to make some accommodations to make it easier to vote. If you're you know, deployed in Kandahar, Afghanistan, you're not going to be able to get to a fax machine or you're not going to be able to get to a copy machine to copy your ballot right. and send it in, right? So you have to have something that's easier. And Mac Warner was himself um, in the military and had been deployed and unable to vote. And now he has four kids that are in the military and had a lot of the problems. So he was a great partner because not only was he interested in the technology of it, but he had a passion about the military voters. And when I had worked um, with Jill Biden, we did a project called Joining Forces with Michelle Obama that focused on uh, military members and their families. And it was around um, employment, healthcare, job opportunities for spouses. But mm -hmm. so we made a point when we were traveling both domestically and internationally to visit bases. And especially overseas, just anecdotally, we kept hearing over and over again how difficult it was for the service member and their families to vote. So when Mac Warner kind of talked about this and, you know, my background with military families, it seemed like the perfect place to start. And it was a, a set population. So you weren't, you know, you could test it. And a lot of the military members now sometimes just email their ballots back, which doesn't really have any security and no privacy. So the system, you know, the technologies we were looking at improved security and privacy for those voters and made it easier. So it was a perfect place to start. And then just last year in November in Utah County, they ended up using the app um, to allow voters with disabilities to vote. And we had one like news story of a 106-year-old woman who used her 
her home and she was super excited to be able to vote, you know, privately and by <laughs> herself. And it was, uh, you know, it, was, it really kind of proved the point that, you know, sometimes you get so caught up in like, what's the technology? What's the security that you almost forget? Like, no, this is about making it easier for voters who want to vote, but have for whatever reasons, some difficulties with the systems mm -hmm. that we have in place right now. Oh, that's amazing. So what jurisdictions have have already used mobile technology? Yeah, so we've so like I said we started in West Virginia and we did the general uh, the primary and the general there in 2018 and then in 2019 we worked with the city of Denver for their municipal election and their runoff and then Utah County um, in Utah we did their primary and general election and then um, for the general we had two counties in Oregon, one county in Washington, and then Utah again. And then the beginning of this year, I think I might have mentioned, uh, we did a, a pilot with the King County Conservation District. So for their Board of Supervisors, a pretty local election, but um, for, the, for a conservation district, very expensive to run an election. And so we came in to work with them. And in that election, you know, everyone who was a qualified voter, 1.2 million voters were able to use mobile voting and we were able to double turnout and, you know, people really liked wow. it. Yeah. So it was, you know, it, it's been so far tested with, you know, some limited populations and kind of lower level elections, but that gives us the confidence that it works, you know, that it's safe and secure yeah. and that people actually like it. Because one of the things that was really interesting in um, the conservation district election is that you got your ballot online and you could mark it online, but then the voter had a choice. You could print it out and mail it back. You could print it out and put it in a Dropbox or you could submit it electronically. And 96% of people chose submitting it electronically. So, wow. yeah, it was really interesting. It's sometimes one of those things that you know, when you talk to people <laughs> who are really involved in either election administration or politics, you know, you start hearing, and, and rightfully so, right? We want it to be safe and secure. There's no point in doing it otherwise. But it kind of gets obsessed and focused on that. But when you talk to your friends and neighbors and an Uber driver or anybody else, they see the benefit of it. And especially people who are working multiple jobs or working a job oh, and going yeah. to school and driving Uber, just the, the ease is something that they're willing, you know, they're willing to make the trade-offs to be able to participate. Right. Oh, clearly there is no doubt. And, you know, 97%, that's, that's like, uh, gold, that's gold, you know, when it comes yeah. to like a focus group, right? I yeah, mean, right. You can't get more clear than that. <laughs> so then who's been using the technology so far in 2020? Yes. So it's, it's interesting. We had West Virginia is now back for their second round. And this time, mm -hmm. their legislature at, at the urging of the Secretary of State passed a law that all voters with disabilities statewide will be able to use mobile voting in the primary awesome. and in addition to the, um, to the military and overseas voters. And what's been interesting lately is that there are... Um, just a lot of incoming calls now from many jurisdictions because of coronavirus. And so even yeah. looking at votes, oh, but to, to answer your original question, um, Delaware is, the ballots are going out to military and overseas next week, as well as West Virginia. And I think we're, 
you know, in the process now of talking to like five or 10 other jurisdictions about some kind of mobile voting solution as part of their response to coronavirus. And so, you know, if you're talking then to like the secretaries of state and the county clerks and auditors and, and whatnot, why why is it then that you think that they're interested? They just see the inherent value, the efficiency. What do you think yeah. it is? Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know the people who administer elections day to day have a pretty good understanding that no system is foolproof and perfect. Um, you know, if you mm-hmm. think about paper ballots, but then you think back to Florida in two thousand, or even last year with missing absentee ballots in North Carolina that required an election to be rerun. I think they know very clearly that there's not one perfect way to do it. And so they see the need, you know, at the, at their own local levels to be able to solve some problems, whether it's for, you know, college students that are remote or, you Mm -hmm. know, one of the interesting things why Utah County was interested in this was because they have a large, population in that county of missionaries from the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And so mm-hmm. that's a way that they could vote privately and securely while they're on their mission. So, you know, it's right. different in every place on why they might be interested in it. I think in the long run, they know it's what they need to bring in younger voters. And at the end of the yeah. day, once those systems got in place, it would actually be a lot less expensive because people would be using their own devices to vote. Well, and as some of these states are kind of, it's almost like a test run doing with the military and some of these other hyper smaller groups, so to speak, to see that it actually works and that they can take a leap and, and expand that. And are you, are you seeing now by chance with, you know, the the advent of COVID-19 and uh, this crisis we're all facing is, is there, do you see more people interested, reaching out, wanting to learn more about how this works? Yep. Absolutely. It's, it's why my day to day is still pretty busy, even while working remotely. (laughs) Yes, we we seem to have had several calls a day with different jurisdictions that were interested in this, and also on how it would work with vote by mail. So vote by mail, you know, in some ways, because it's been out there longer, people are more familiar with it, maybe an easier way to scale up. However, and, and I think that's great, you know, any way that we can make sure that people can participate in the election, but it doesn't solve every single problem. So, we, you know, what we were talking about before with military and overseas, because of COVID-19, its impact worldwide, a lot of countries now are cutting back on mail service. And so if you were mm-hmm. going to get a ballot in the mail overseas, there's, you know, now we have to make sure it gets there and gets back. And that seems, you know, very sketchy right now. The um, Right. The other thing is, if you're a voter who is blind, you get a paper ballot in the mail, you're not able to vote on that by yourself. And so what what we've been suggesting to jurisdictions is that if they're expanding vote by mail, they need to have a secure mobile voting accessible option for those who need it. We also are thinking like, okay, so if you have... um, like say a subset of the population immunocompromised people that you don't even want going to a mailbox or having to touch things like that, you know, letting them use their own phone or iPad to vote would make a lot more sense. And so those are the, you know, the conversations, some states are interested in, you know, a larger expansion. Some are looking at it as part of a vote by mail system. 
And um, mm-hmm. so we're you know, trying to just provide the learning that we've had. And there's been a, a slightly different issue, but could be relevant is members of Congress and I think state legislators are looking for ways for themselves to vote remotely in on their congressional, you know, yay or nay votes. And um, mm-hmm. I think that could be interesting too, because just familiarity with technology and how remote voting can work if our elected officials are using it in their day jobs, you know, they might right. be more open, open to the concept of it, you know, for, for actual voters. Well, speaking of that, I mean, is anyone out there really opposed to mobile voting? And I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, basic security concerns yeah. given, you know, our friends, the Russians and others trying to right. mess with right. our election. But, you know, what are, you know, other concerns that maybe people who are a little opposed to this might have? Yeah, I think there's there's probably two things. There's There's kind of a set amount of people that really don't want any technology in voting. And I, and I should have prefaced some of my earlier things that all these methods and all these technologies have a paper backup that can be audited. And in all of our previous pilots, they've been able to do 100% audit on these ballots because it's new and they, everyone just wanted to make sure it was working. Um, and so I understand the need for a paper trail for audit. And I think that that really um, answers a lot of the security concerns because if you think there's something wrong and you can Good go point. back to the paper, you can fix it. But but there's a subset of people and, and some in academia that have always been against any advances in technology and voting, and they don't seem likely to change their mind. Maybe, maybe this current crisis will help. But so, right. what I've said is, what I'm interested in, the people I'm interested in talking to, and maybe any of your listeners, I'm interested in p- talking to people who are skeptical but open-minded. So, like maybe concerned right. about some of the technology but want to help fix it, because a lot of the opponents are like, we don't like this but they don't help you fix it. You know, they're just like, no, yeah. they don't really have an answer for what, what do you do with a voter who can't see or who has another issue and can't write, you know? So like you, you, I, I think you have to work on improving accessibility and improving security at the same time. And none of those are static processes. You have to keep working on both to make sure voters have an easier time voting, but also feel secure in the safety of their vote. Well, it's really interesting point about those with certain disabilities or limitations. I mean, their voting, basic voting rights are being disenfranchised. It almost sounds like whether it's municipalities, counties, statewide or whatnot, like they have an obligation to find that alternative. I mean, it almost sounds to me like that's a lawsuit in the making by some people if they want to like organize around that. So get ahead of it, do the right thing. Right, right, exactly. And like some states in the, you know, where you have in-person voting will have accessible voting machines um, within the polling place. But now when we're looking at a system where you can't go to a polling place, if you don't have an accessible option for people that they can do from their own home, they are basically disenfranchised because there's, you know, or you, or you can say, well, someone can help you vote, but then you lose the, the secrecy of the ballot, which is so important to people. Right, right, exactly. Well, you know, what do you then kind of foresee happening next on this mobile voting front, given what we're dealing with right now and the kind of conversations that you're having with stakeholders? Yeah, I think we're going to see an ex- a continued expansion as more jurisdictions try it. I mean, honestly, the best way to demonstrate that it works is to do it successfully, because you can... Yeah 
argue with people forever about the pros and cons. But <laughs> you can't really argue if there's been like, you know, 10 elections and it's worked, you know, it's harder to make the arguments against it. So I think we'll continue to expand. I think in the next six months, there's going to be a lot of interest in looking at how this can supplement in-person voting or vote by mail for those who need it. And I think just like anything that's new is like, you know, you have a smaller group of people that start it and then other people see it and then other people start demanding it. So I think in addition to keeping doing the pilots and working on the technology, I think we also have to start building a bit of a grassroots effort around it so that um, mm -hmm. people start demanding it and people who need it because they're working three jobs start asking their elected officials to make it happen. Because as much as, you know, it's a great idea there are certain people that benefit from low turnout primaries and have figured out a way to succeed in that environment. So they, yes, they have necessarily going to be for change and they're not going to say why they're just going to say security, et cetera, you know? So I think yeah. we have to build up some voices of actual people to push for it as well. Well, people want to learn more about this, whether it's just an average voter or an entity that whose responsibility it is to execute on this, where should they go? They should go. We have a, a whole website devoted to it called the mobile voting project.org mobile voting project.org. Yeah. And then also anyone can f feel free to email me at Sheila at tuskholdings.com. And I'm happy to talk to anyone about it, <laughs> give my pitch, <laughs> uh, get advice and, and hear everybody's input. Well, it's really amazing, and I know sooner than later we're going to be seeing a lot more of this, and I know we can think to a good extent you and the Tusk Philanthropy Organization and the family for putting so much effort and energy into this, and you know, we're seeing now that this is more important than ever before. So I want to thank you again for coming back to chat with us and giving us a really eye-opening and great lesson about, you know, this issue. No, thanks, Becky. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about it. You got it. As always, the broadcast is brought to you by C-Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm, bringing passion and veteran experience to the help our clients meet their business goals. Thank you again to our sponsors, Evolper, the insurance people, and our podcast host, please, the <laughs> old normal, uh, 1871. Broadcast is produced and edited by Twee Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Music by Christy Bennett's Fumi Chipsy Project. To learn more about C Strategies and the broadcast, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at C Strategies CHI. So come let the world